Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here at the home of Common Sense. It is, of course, Talk Radio. I've returned to the studio after a very sombre weekend following the horrific murder of MP Sir David Amos. The suspect has been named as Ali Harvey Ali, whose father moved to the UK from Somalia, where he was an advisor to the previous government. This morning, as police continue to question him, there are suggestions that the killer may have been motivated by Sir David's links to Qatar, which supports the current regime in the African nation. Uh, I feel that we are now living in a very global world. We are living in a very globalised world. There seems to be no apparent reason why a man like Ali Harvey Ali, uh, who was brought up in this country, who went to school in Croydon, but who has been radicalised in some way by Islamic fundamentalists, should want to kill one of the most popular MPs that has ever been in the House of Commons. All weekend, there have been calls for people to be nicer to one another, not just on social media, but in politics generally. There has been much talk of previous incidents involving MPs and the need for better security. But it's also time, surely, to talk about the ever-increasing threat that exists to all of us from bedroom radicals who have been converted to terrorism during lockdown. Ali himself, his thoughts have been radicalised by the hate preacher Anjum Chowdhury, who has jailed in 2015 but is now free to wander the streets of the UK after being released on licence. And surely, in the wake of intelligence service warnings about northeast African Islamic terror groups, it is time to properly check the identities of those young men entering our country illegally on the dinghies that reach our shores every single day. We know for a fact that many of them are coming from those very northeast African countries that Al-Qaeda are continually recruiting in. 0344 499 1000. Up first this morning, we're talking to Brendan Clark-Smith, Tory MP for Bassett Law, who has himself received death threats because of his stance against taking the knee at football. I'll be asking him exactly what we should be doing to safeguard our politicians and where he stands on the robust political debates we should or should not be having. Security expert Will Geddes is checking in as well. We'll ask him just whether it's even viable to have bodyguards around the clock for our members of Parliament. Peter Hitchens is here as well with his take of the events on the weekend. Plus, I'll be asking him about his column in the Mail on Sunday where he points out that this country now is primed for yet another lockdown, regardless of COVID, and what happens this winter. 0344 We'll be talking doctors once again today as well with the latest from the BMA who now reckon that forcing GPs to actually see patients is harassment 
and discrimination. Huh? And the news that it's now official, mass testing children in school is a total waste of time. 0344 499 1000. We've got a new feature for you today as well, which is going to kick off and run probably all the way through the winter months. It's going to be called Shortage of the Day because we're now being warned that there's going to be a shortage of pies, there's going to be a shortage of bus drivers. Uh, I want you to tell me what you think there's going to be a shortage of. And if you have found that there is a shortage of something, by all means, get in touch. We'll be running a tally. We'll be running a little chart that comes out every single day. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, right here on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Now, there's been an awful lot said, um, an awful lot meant well, an awful lot of very, very kind words being said, both by the family uh, of the uh, now, unfortunately, passed away MP, Sir David Amos, who appears to have been one of the most popular MPs, not just in the House of Commons, but in his own constituency in Essex, where he was murdered on Friday afternoon. I spent Friday driving for a couple of hours during the time uh, at which the incident took place. It started, as I set off from London, uh, with the attack where it said a man had been stabbed. It then became that a man had been detained at the scene. It then became a man had died at the scene. It then became clear that it was Sir David Amos who had, in fact, died at the scene at the hands of what can only be described as a ghastly terrorist, a coward, a man who stabbed him multiple times. We know not why. Uh, The police have still not charged anybody, but the suspect who they have in custody uh, has a Somalian heritage. He came uh, with his father uh, from Somalia. He was brought up in South London. He was thought to have been radicalised. And now here we are with the intelligence services telling us that there could be many, many more of these kind of bedroom activists, these horrible people who are likely to want to do harm because they have been radicalised into an extreme form of Islamic terror. Let's talk now to Brendan Clark-Smith, Conservative MP for Bassett Law, uh, one of those who came into Parliament relatively recently um, and will have a very interesting view, of course, on all of this. Brendan, a very good morning to you. Welcome. Morning, Mike. Thanks for having me on today. I mean, obviously, it's a solemn weekend that we've all had. It's been a terrible time for Um, for Sir David's friends and family. And he had many friends um, in the area of uh, where his constituency was. He seemed to work tirelessly for almost everybody. I mean, there's nothing really that that you can say which isn't exemplary about the man. Yeah, David gave Parliament a good name and uh, is so well thought of across the House. And uh, even though I've not been an MP for very long, Mike, um, you know, David, he would go out of his way to speak with people. Um, he was always interested in whatever subject you wanted to talk about. And that was a very, very genuine, always had a smile on his face. And, uh, you know, he's really everything that you would want to see in Parliament. So it's what makes it even harder to take, really, to lose somebody who was, who was such a great man and in such an appalling manner. And, um, you know, I, I was heartbroken when I heard the news on Friday. I'd been doing a constituency um, surgery myself, um, went to do a visit and then saw my phone. And I got a message from my wife about it and, uh, rushed back to the office and then unfortunately we'd heard that David had passed away. I mean at that at that sort of time do you do you think of your own safety Brendan because obviously I'm sure an awful lot of MPs have have pondered that over the course of the weekend. Yeah and I've, I've I've had the tough tough uh, conversation at home as many of my colleagues probably have about you know do do you really still want to be doing this especially when you've got young families and so on and I'd say well it, yeah, absolutely and we must carry on 
And, and what we mustn't let it do, Mike, is we mustn't let it stop us having that bond with the public that we have. And it's it's so important that we actually get to see people, we get out and about, we get to speak to our constituents. And, you know, we don't want to see that thrown away because the actions of one evil person who's who's done this. And I, th- I think there's two different issues here. Um, there's the one, as you've said, about... Um, radicalised uh, the terrorist approach and then there's also a wider conversation about the abuse that members of parliament receive, the level of political discourse and so on. So yeah it, it does make you think but I mean certainly it's it strengthened my resolve um, to carry on more than anything really and I'm, I'm sure that's what David would want as well. Well that's right and I mean Priti Patel obviously has been very um, protective of MPs and said there's going to be conversations I think going on today in parliament between yourselves and, and members of the police and as to what they can do to protect you but at the end of the day, you know, um, there's not very much they can do to protect you around the clock. Alistair Carmichael was speaking over the weekend, um, the Lib Dem MP, and he was saying, well, it's all very well having somebody with you at a, at, a, at a constituency surgery. But, you know, what about when you go out with your wife to the theatre or when you go out for dinner or you're sitting on a train? I mean, you know, you can't have 24-7 security like the President of the United States of America, can you? No, Alistair's right there. And um, it's, it's the thing. I mean, you can be careful at surgeries. You can make it appointment only. You can uh, screen people in advance and you can you can take uh, other other measures. So not telling people where the venue is until later on or advertising your whereabouts. Mm. So there's things you can do to minimise risk. Yeah, I mean, we have um, things like panic alarms um, and things fitted to our houses and so on. But if you're a public figure, there's there's always the possibility that that's there. And the, the one thing I would say is, you know, our, our police officers, our emergency service workers, um, they put themselves at this kind of risk every day uh, as well. So it's, it's not just politicians there. But, uh, yeah, we can minimise the risk, but I don't think you'll ever entirely get rid of it. No, Mike. no, I think that's right. And I mean, as far as the way that uh, these arguments have been developing over the course of the weekend, there seems to be an awful lot of people. Um, on both sides of the debate who are kind of saying, well, you know, this is the kind of thing that happens when the public debate becomes toxic. I mean, I know you yourself have suffered uh, at the hands of various Twitter trolls because of the stance you took on uh, not taking the knee and what people should be doing about all of that. But I think there's a huge difference, isn't there, between, you know, people being rude to each other, uh, either in, uh, in person or indeed on Twitter, and some maniac who's taken it upon himself to, to act on behalf of Allah uh, and murder an MP because he doesn't like what he does. Yeah, absolutely. I don't think it helps um, with political discourse and calling people scum and so on. I always say about my political opponents, you know, I don't think that they're scum or anything like that. I just think that they're wrong. Um, And we just have to agree to disagree on those things. But I I do think sometimes the way that that discourse goes on, it can encourage bad behaviour from other people. And I, I get dozens of uh, abusive emails and uh, not very nice things written on social media mm. and i'm the first to admit you know i can be a bit of a wind-up merchant sometimes and i generally just brush it off um the, the thing for me when it crossed the line was when people started threatening members of my family yeah uh, i had a very unpleasant individual um when i made the comments about taking the knee and criticizing that talking about kneeling on my children's necks until they were dead um and i think that's that nice, that's yeah that, yeah, exactly. And that, that kind of crosses the point, I think. Yes. Um, and were you able to stuff. figure out who that was? Were you able to get a satisfaction on that? 
gap. Yeah, so they found out who he was. He was he was arrested and um, obviously punished for that. Um, but as we say, I mean, it's it's part of a wider problem. This abuse of MPs, and I, th- I think there's this idea about MPs, you know, that we're lazy or we're all on the take or so on, and um, yeah, they they don't realise there's a human being behind that, and it encourages mm. that kind of behaviour. But as you as you said, Mike, I think that's very different again from this sort of radical sort of Islamist uh, problem which we've had for many years now, and that also needs tackling. And of course. Um, and, you know, making sure that our security services are on top of that. Yeah, and I mean, it's clearly very difficult for them because there's an awful lot of people here in this country uh, who either have come here as a second generation or who have been radicalised while they've been here by absolute scumbags. And I'm going to call Andrew Chowdhury a scumbag uh, without fear or favour. Um, and also there are those who will come here uh, who have come just first time as, as immigrants um, who may have some kind of radical agenda. And it seems to me that this is a time to separate those people out and say, you know, we need to know who they are. We need to know if they're coming here, if they have those intentions. And we need, as Boris Johnson said at Tory party conference, you know, we, we should have the right to know who is entering our country. Yeah, I, th- I think calling Anjum Chowdhury a scumbag is quite kind, Mike. Um, Thank but, you. Uh, yeah, ab- ab- absolutely. Um, and, and the security services, again, if it's a long-running thing or it's planned and so on, then they can they can track that. But when you get these lone wolf attacks that happen all of a sudden, the, the more unsophisticated ones, they're the, they're the more difficult ones. But as you said, I mean, it highlights the the problem that we've got rarely and when people are coming into the country we need to know who they are and we need to know that they accept our values and we need to know that uh, we're going to be safe really so absolutely i agree with that yeah and again i mean i'm not even that bothered about necessarily uh, accepting our values or having a cultural difference of opinion with us or having different views to us but what i don't want them to be thinking that they can do is to go around randomly murdering people yeah, it's, it's appalling, I think, in uh, in any culture, really, to go and do that. So, you know, you have to ask what, what kind of people are doing this um, and, you know, whether that's being brainwashed and radicalised in their bedrooms or whether there's a wider issue there that needs tackling. But mm. uh, clearly, you know, this, this isn't going to go away anytime soon and we have to be super vigilant over it. No, of course we do. And the point is, is that, you know, this guy was apparently referred to uh, something called Prevent, which is apparently um, a voluntary situation whereby if you think that you might be being radicalized you can go and talk to someone about it i mean it doesn't sound very hard line to me it doesn't sound like the way to go to be honest no and i'd, I'd like to hear more of that and um as you're saying the details are, are still emerging really uh saw another report that saying he'd considered looking at other members of parliament as well so it wasn't necessarily um just one that had been picked out in that sense so i suppose we'll we'll only find out about this as the um as the details emerge but yeah it's, it is quite worrying that if this person's been on the radar at some point um whether he slipped through the net or whether they ever thought there was a problem or as you say whether it was just a self-referral or not but uh, again I'm, I'm sure this is something that the investigation is going to bring out yeah and i think we were told back in the days of 7-7 that al-qaeda uh, and isis basically had declared war on britain and so it is a kind of a state generally that we are in you know it's not as if it's going to change it's not as if it's going to get any better but it certainly i would say puts even further pressure on Priti patel to control those people 
not only who are here who need to be up on the watch list, but to also control those coming in. And when there's no sense of that. I mean, somebody uh, put out a tweet at the weekend saying since uh, Sir David was murdered, another 300 people have arrived on our beaches. Now, uh, we're told that Somalia and North East Africa at the moment are particular recruiting grounds for Al-Qaeda and ISIS um, and every other right wing, uh, sorry, every other kind of, you know, uh, Islamic terror group. So surely if we know people are coming from there, we need to be very careful. We, we do. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is a wider part of the law as well. I mean, even, even when we do know people are a threat and they're over here, actually getting rid of them uh, is is quite problematic, as we've seen. You know, we've seen this kind of activist lawyers exhausted right. the appeals process. Well, in, I mean, in this guy's case, he was British. I mean, so you can't really get rid of him anyway, but you just need to know what he's up to. Yeah, precisely. Um, but this this is the this is the problem, really. And um, I mean, you you speak about people coming over on the boats, Mike, and yeah, that's something we do need to stop. Um, but you know, whether that's working with the French authorities or whether that's passing the new Nationality and Borders uh, Act that we're we're trying to get in, that's going to allow us to actually um, deport people who we actually uh, don't want to be here and uh, not not here for the right mm. reasons. But so uh, that's going to take a while to come in, and in the meantime, we need to make sure that the people who are coming over, we know everything that we can about. Yeah. And I mean, the other question that's being raised this this weekend is what on earth is this guy doing living in a council property uh, in a street in Kentish town that most people can't afford to walk down, never mind live in? I mean, I can't afford to live in. Charles Corrin lives in the same street. You know, this is a wealthier part of London. Uh, and yet he appears to be living there uh, on the council uh, coin. Yeah, I, th- I think I saw a valuation of about two million pounds on it, um, which, yeah, very it's, good it's very nice too. Yeah, as, as I say, I mean, uh, perhaps we need a review of the way that we um, we do housing stock in this country generally. I think um, I read a lot of these stories and, um, you, you know, you do see some people living a life of luxury and uh, don't really appreciate it either. So, uh, you know, obviously, where, wherever somebody lives, um, they can be radicalised, as we've seen. Mm. Um, and, you know, it's it's one of these things that you'd, you'd have thought, you know, this isn't a bad country to live in, I don't think. Um, I don't understand where this hatred comes from. No, I, well, I think some of us could explain where some of it comes from. But, Brendan, stay with us if you would, because we've got a couple more questions for you. Uh, Parliament's back today, of course. There will be tributes paid uh, to Sir David Amos. There will be a minute's silence, of course, as well. Brendan Clark-Smith, Conservative MP for Bassett Law, is here with us. The Independent Republic of Mike Gray on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. Peter Hitchens is here with us later on in this show, of course. Brendan Clark-Smith with us right now, Conservative MP for Bassett Law. Uh, back in the House today, Brendan, uh, first kind of uh, uh, session of the new term, if you like. Obviously, there will be an awful lot of attention paid to the events of the weekend, um, but still many other things to talk about as well. COVID passports, vaccine passports, you know, we see the introduction today in Scotland, where apparently, even if you uh, are exempt from getting the vaccination or you have a medical reason, you won't be able to go to a nightclub. It's like a two tier medical system, apartheid they're bringing in. Um, What's your view of what will happen in in our parliament in the UK? I disagreed with vaccine passports. Um, it was the idea with, with the vaccines generally. I've always encouraged people to get it. I've had it myself, but I've always said it's important you have a choice to do that. And as mm. you said, you don't want this two-tier system coming in. Um, so I'm glad that we didn't introduce it, Mike, uh, to be honest. Uh, I was surprised that Scotland did it. I think there's just been a tendency there in Scotland to try and uh, I think Nicola Sturgeon trying to get in there before the rest of the UK mm. um, and try and sort of set the pace in terms of what, what's happening. Um, and there's 
kind of done the opposite in this case where we've actually, I think, pursued quite a sensible policy mm. and uh, they've gone the opposite way. But I, th- I think they'll have problems. You see what's happened in France and in Italy and other places like that. It's not going particularly well. So I think we have to be very careful before we go down that route. And there'll be a lot of people who are, are very upset about it. But I think the bigger problem is just in terms of logistics. You know, this is a, a big thing for a lot of venues that are already having a lot of uh, extra costs as it is. And it's just one extra hurdle for them to get over. Well, I think that's right. I mean, are you fairly certain that it won't happen here then? Because it's always impossible to tell now whenever you speak to cabinet ministers, because uh, one minute they're saying, oh, absolutely no reason to introduce them. And the next minute they're saying, well, we reserve the right to introduce them if we feel it's necessary. I just don't really know anymore. Well, it's one of those bar in a huge third wave all of a sudden, which I don't think is, is going to happen. That um, I, I can't see it coming in, Mike, no. Um, but, yeah, they, they don't like to uh, state things as a certainty mm. with COVID because we haven't really had certainty all the way through. So I think they're right to just be cautious with that and to keep things in reserve. But I don't think realistically there's any prospect of that. I would probably look at things like the booster campaign that's going on. Um, we've got to be careful around Christmas. I know they talk about pressure on the NHS, but then it's, it's under pressure every winter um well exactly i mean we're going to hear that narrative now for a while aren't we i mean today the most ridiculous story i think and we're talking about it later on is the bma claiming that uh, doctors who are being forced in their words to have face-to-face consultations with patients are suffering from discrimination and harassment it's like sorry you're a doctor go and see a patient that's not harassment or discrimination that's you doing your job yeah, I mean, I, I declare an interest, Mike. I'm married to one. Um, so I do have this discussion. Well, I hope she's seeing patients face to face. Otherwise, you're going to be in trouble from me. Absolutely. And the thing is, they they, they have been doing throughout the pandemic as well. Um, I think maybe because there's, there's a bit of a backlog, as we know, um, and because people are seeing big queues, they're not necessarily getting their phone call answered sometimes. But doctors are actually working and I know they're getting a lot of stick at the moment, but they, they are pretty much flat out. Um, and whether that's in A&E, whether that's in the departments, whether that's GPs, they are actually putting a lot of work in. So I do think it's right we give them a bit of extra support there to try and um, relieve it a bit, try and get that kind of that backlog of patients sorted out but uh, yeah I, th- I think what the BMA is saying I mean they're probably reflecting some of the wider stick that doctors are getting at the moment but uh, in terms of face-to-face really I mean that's what it's all about same as we were talking yeah, but, about I mean, the, only reason we're in this, we're, the only reason we're in this this place Brendan is because the NHS is so badly run and it needs to be run properly and I think now is the time if we're going to have a Tory party which is genuinely going to radicalise Britain and make Britain better then the first thing they should do is fix the NHS isn't it? Well, it needs reforming, certainly. Yeah, I mean, you can't just keep throwing cash at something. We we do spend a lot of money on healthcare in this country, and I, I think the problem is in the past it's been very difficult to have any sort of conversation about the NHS mm. uh, without people waving their arms in the air, accusing you of trying to privatise it or whatever else it is. And I've right. I've lived abroad in in various countries with different systems. Lived in Scandinavia where they they have a de- decent healthcare system, and you know, a lot of countries do things differently to us. So doing it differently doesn't mean that you're privatising it or you're doing anything else. It just means you're looking at it like you would with any organisation. I don't see why we can't do that. Yeah, it's not just that they do it differently. It's that nobody does it the way we do it. You know, we are single-handedly doing it this way. Nobody else thinks it's a good idea. But, Brendan, great to talk to you. Thanks for coming on the show. Brendan Clark's with MP, Conservative MP for Bassett Law, uh, making an awful lot of very, very sensible points there. Because that is, of course, what we do here at the Independent Republican Mike Graham. Can I also, by the way, state for the record that today, uh, aside from my socks... Everything I'm wearing is recycled, Okay, People are making a big deal of uh, the Duke uh, of Cornwall 
Is that what he is? Prince of um, whatever he's called? No, Duke and Duchess of Cambridge. There you go. Uh, Prince William and Catherine apparently wearing recycled clothes. Hers is recycled. It was a dress she wore before. <laughs> yeah. So is this jacket, this tie I've worn, the shirt I've worn before. I mean, don't, don't get me wrong. They are all, they've been washed. You know, they've been pressed. They are, you know, clean. But I have worn them before. So does that mean I can qualify now for a million pound grant, please, from uh, Prince William uh, in order to be the newest eco-warrior here at Talk Radio? I'll be putting my application form in forthwith. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Uh, let us talk now continually about what we were mentioning earlier on about the death, the murder, um, the brutal terrorist attack uh, committed against Sir David Amos, of course, MP on Friday. Uh, Will Geddes is here, security expert, a man who knows a thing or two about protecting valuable targets, as uh, people in his business call them. Will, very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. Thanks very much indeed for, for talking to us. I mean, clearly, this was a ghastly, horrific act, which not very many um, people in even your business perhaps could have stopped. But, I mean, listening to some of the suggestions over the weekend about, um, you know, having constant bodyguards 24-7 around the clock for all MPs, apart from the fact that it would probably cost quite a lot of money to the public purse, it's not really practical, is it? Not in the slightest, Mike. Um, the suggestion of actually having close protection for all MPs is, um, unless it's serviced by the private sector, uh, a company like mine, for example, um, it would be impossible to deliver by the police. The police are under-resourced as it is. I mean, they have difficulties getting to investigate burglaries and street crimes and everything else for that matter. But if you gave it to the private sector, uh, maybe even a company not as expensive as mine, Mike, it would cost an absolute fortune. Mm. Um, and the question is, is, is it round the clock or is it just for their surgeries? And as we know with terrorists, they'll look for the path of least resistance. So if there's security at their surgeries, the terrorists might just pick the opportunity when they've left the surgery or they're going about their mm. own normal business. Well, that's right. I mean, without wishing to give away any sort of commercial secrets, Will, I mean, to cover somebody around the clock 24-7, what sort of a daily cost is that? Well, I mean, to, to, to provide it to the sort of level that, say, Pretty Patel has, you'd be looking probably around three to £5,000 every 24 hours. Wow. So, I mean, that's an awful lot of money yeah. when he's setting that up. Right, it really is. And also, you know, if one person is doing it, you then need another person to cover when they can't do it. And you need, you know, you've suddenly got a whole industry going on around it. Um, and as you say, um, one person might not be enough anyway. Because, I mean, if you're doing an event, for example, and you're protecting uh, a high level target, as you would call them, even just in um, a relatively safe arena, say a rock star going to a, going to a gig or, you know, um, a politician going to make a speech. You know, you need a lot of people and you need a lot of vehicles and you need, you know, you need a lot of infrastructure, don't you? Yeah, absolutely. And there's an awful lot of planning around it. I mean, I'll be honest with you, Mike, I've looked after a lot of very, very famous people, people in the, the public eye who are at very high risk. Um, and many of those people do not want security 24 hours, even though they know that they're, they're extremely exposed without it. It's a real impingement potentially on people's lives. And therefore, the delivery of it is absolutely critical. And if it's not delivered by a professional company, then it's going to fall down very, very quickly. I mean, I, I certainly know of some companies who've had principals trying to lose their security because they hate it so much. Mm. Um, so, you know, it has to be done sensibly. And I think the only way that we can do this, Mike, is to actually have personal consultancy with each of the MPs to sit down, look at their lives, look at what they're doing. Uh, making sure that they're adopting certain security protocols which aren't going to adjust their personal lives too much, uh, but will minimise and reduce 
the risk potentially to them. But mm. this has got to be delivered by threat management specialists. It can't be delivered by some community support officer. Mm. This is a very, very specialist field, Mike, as you know. No, of course. And the other sort of conversations, I suppose, that they'll be having today within Parliament with the police and advising uh, to some of the individual MPs, you know, things like, for example, would it be sensible, for example, to set up a kind of a post office style um, counter almost so that when people talk to MPs, they're behind a, a screen. Is, is there well, any point in that or not really? Well, you know, to be honest, I mean, I think as long as coronavirus seems to be a, a key agenda for everybody, you can could excuse having screens between the MP and their constituents. However, I'm sure with most MPs, they're not going to want to have that. They, they, they probably went into that role because they wanted that face-to-face -face contact with their constituents. And anything that creates a divide or a block between them and their constituents is it's not going to be well received. Mm. However, I think what they should be thinking about is where are they holding these surgeries? Uh, holding them in a, in a church in a remote area is probably not what I would suggest the best idea. Uh, there are companies, there are offices, there are retail centers that already have contract security, that already have perhaps checks at the door, bag searches, uh, security gates, then why aren't they using those kind of facilities? And maybe they can adopt the security that's already in place, not adding to the extra cost to the taxpayer. And as far as the uh, Telegraph story this morning about these bedroom radicals, there's a fear that there might be some kind of epidemic of bedroom radicals like this guy, Ali, uh, who have been radicalised over the course of the last couple of years, maybe even before that. Uh, and as long as there's people like Andrew Chowdhury around, you know, that's entirely possible. Um, it's a massive problem, this, isn't it? It is a huge problem, Mike. And when we look at the demographic of um, the individuals and their age category, you know, a lot of these people will have the prevalence of social media in their lives. Uh, they'll be seeking out uh, content online. I mean, one of the things you and I have discussed personally was probably the biggest uh, casualty of this whole lockdown process that we've been through is probably going to be mental health. And mm. I think a lot of people who are in isolation uh, found themselves vulnerable, susceptible, uncertain of their future, and therefore much more vulnerable to perhaps radicalization. And that's not to say everybody would, but there are those within the corners of society that might. Well, that is the problem, isn't it? And I mean, how big of a deal is this for the security services? Because obviously we know that at any given time, they're probably tracking something like 500 plots uh, in one way or another, uh, anything ranging from, you know, suicide attacks to places like Parliament, um, to attacks at railway stations, to attacks at places like the Manchester Arena. You know, they're tracking people constantly. I mean, it's, it's an impossible task, isn't it? It is. And I mean, and uh, you can up that number to about 700, Mike. But also bearing in mind there are some 40,000 uh, subjects of interest or persons of interest mm. the security services have on their radar. Obviously, the spectrum of those that are higher risk uh, are at one end. And then you have individuals like this perpetrator who was at the lower end, who didn't even get into the channel program. You know, they were only in the prevent program. And that, to a certain extent, is more uh, social worker level. Uh, their details are not necessarily logged, aren't necessarily passed on to the security services. And it's more voluntary than anything else. I mean, I was listening to a lot of the, uh, the chatter over the course of the week. Andrew, Andrew Rossendale, who's an MP that we speak to quite a lot on this show, he talks about having his car vandalised. He talks about having his office, uh, his constituency office, asked, uh, uh, the victim of an arson attack. Somebody tried to break into his home. I mean, you know, there's a lot more of this going on than we know. And that obviously isn't necessarily terror related, but it's nuisance related. It's certainly criminal activity. Um, it would certainly suggest that if you're an MP, you would want your home to be made quite secure. Uh, Mike, we live in toxic times, unfortunately. I mean, 
you only have to go onto Twitter to see the, 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 the cesspool of individuals who just have hate that they want to uh, spit out at everybody in every single direction. Uh, MPs are an easy target in many regards because obviously they are representative of the government, they're representative of the agendas which are currently being discussed in, uh, in the mainstream media. So, you know, as a result, there are those that are very disenchanted, disgruntled, with malintent, who, who want to, you know, fundamentally throw everything they can at them. Now, in many cases, having dealt with many, many death threats for clients over the years, there are some that you can calculate down to simply being you know, from the bottom of a wine glass or a beer glass uh, at 11 o'clock at night. Quite often it's down to the time of day that that message is sent, which will tell you an awful lot about who that person might be and how genuine that threat might be. Uh, but I generalize that. There are those obviously that are persistent threats. And so, you know, MPs are in the firing line of all sorts of abuse potentially on a daily basis. And it's measuring what needs to be done and how it can be done. So this kind of security measures and this consultancy for each of them I think it's a necessity anyway, Mike, regardless of what tragedy that we've just faced. Mm, absolutely. And just for um, an individual, I mean, I, there, I know there are a lot of MPs listening to this show and, and, and you might think that they know more than, than they do uh, because a lot of them probably don't know much about this kind of business. I mean, how should they be able to judge a threat? Because as we found out, many of them are getting them. I mean, I get them as well. I mean, I don't pay attention to most of them, but I think if I was concerned about one, I would talk to you about it and say, what do you make of this? I mean, what could ordinary individual MPs do if they get a threat of some kind? Well, again, it depends on the content of the threat. If it's an actual threat to harm, it's I am going to come and kill you mm. or I am going to come and murder your family or I am going. And they give any kind of particular indicators that they know exactly where they are or what their routine is mm. uh, or where they might be. Uh, again, one of the things that you and I both know is we don't tweet our location if we've been somewhere until after we've left it, for yeah. example. Right. You know, we're very cautious about not actually putting out there where we are at that precise time. A lot of Celebrities got caught out on that by paparazzi when Twitter first started appearing. Yes. Um, so it's a good example there. Uh, but if there is a specific threat, then obviously they should be calling the police straight away. Mm. Let the police investigate it. Look at the person. But the problem is the anonymity behind social media, and particularly Twitter. I've, I've followed the procedural process of trying to identify uh, some very nasty threats uh, via Twitter. And it's, and it's almost pointless, Mike. Mm. So it's, it's about making sure that you are recording and you're documenting uh, those kind of messages. I mean, evidently, if you can block them, great, um, but fundamentally keep a record of them because that is going to show a course of conduct under the Harassment Act, which the police can then utilise in prosecuting that individual or arresting them for that matter. Yeah, exactly right. Well, good to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. Will Geddes, their security expert, giving us the lowdown on what it would take and how much it would cost to actually make sure that all MPs are protected at all times, no matter what they're doing. I don't think it's practical. I don't think it's affordable. And I probably don't think it's wise either. However, I do think that there are certain things that could be done. There are, can, there are precautions that can be made. There's been a big debate going on on social media about whether or not social media accounts should be made um, to be more than um, uh, not just named, but actually linked to proper individuals so that, you know, you're either an organisation or you're a person, but you cannot be any longer anonymous. You cannot be a troll. You cannot set up a fake account, uh, which is not in your name. You cannot have a fake account, which is linked to a fake email address or a fake bank account. You know, you must prove who you are uh, before you can go on social media. And all 
these kind of, you know, freedom of speech warriors who want to make sure that anybody can say anything or do anything because that's what life is all about. Well, I'm sorry. If you're going to be an absolute horror show and you're going to go around making threats to people, and you're going to go around, you know, saying what uh, terrible harm you're going to do to people. Well, I don't think you should have the right to be on social media and you certainly shouldn't be anonymous. I don't think that is at all justifiable. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Let us, without further ado, uh, speak to Mr. Peter Hitchens from the Mail on Sunday. Peter, very good morning to you. Good morning. Terribly sad. Sorry. Reports that this morning I, I encountered a severe shortage of common sense. All the places <laughs> where I normally get it were out. Well, at least luckily you've checked into the home of common sense, which indeed is well, indeed, yeah, uh, well, alive and kicking. Manufacture some. Here at Talk Radio, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it is extraordinary what uh, we're now being told we're going to run out of, but we'll, we'll come to that later on. Let's start with, with uh, yeah, the, the piece that you drew attention to at the weekend after the horrible incidents in, um, uh, in Essex with uh, uh, Sir David Amos and the attack on him by this, what would appear to be uh, a, a radical Islamic terrorist. You picked up on the fact that there was a Catholic priest in a, in uh, in attendance because Sir David well, was, was quite a devout Catholic, and there seemed to be a problem there. Well, I didn't pick up on it. I mean, it was several national newspapers picked up on it on Sunday morning, and and I noticed it. I have to say, I'm not myself a Roman Catholic, and I don't, um, I, I, I I wouldn't expect to be given the last rites by a priest, but I know people who are Roman mm. Catholics, and I know how incredibly seriously they. And their families often take this. And I, when I saw that this had happened, I, I was astonished by it because I still have this idea in my head, even though everything I know tells me it's wrong, that the, the police are, are a relatively conservative, common sense organization. I, but the, the, what is, and I posted a tweet saying that whatever, this, whatever else this event showed, it showed that Britain could certainly no longer be called a Christian country. 
I think 50 years ago, if a priest had appeared at the uh, at, at, at a scene where a, a, a known Roman Catholic was dying, the police would have let him through without a second's thought. Mm. It would have been a normal thing to do. But all that's gone now. Well, I suppose uh, you could argue. It could... doesn't apply to this sort of thing. They, they, and this isn't because of hostility exactly. I mean, no doubt there, there are people in the in the police as everywhere else who are hostile to, to religious faith of one kind or another but in general uh, the police are just ignorant of it and indifferent to it as so much of our society is simply don't know and i've been engaged in this terrible uh, twitter brawls for the past 12 hours or so <laughs> with people who simply can't understand that this might matter to anybody yeah uh, and I, that, that's what disturbs me. I just so happen to know that it, anybody who's read uh, or indeed watched the amazing television adaptation of, of Evelyn Moore's great novel, Bride Said Revisited, will know the final scenes are all about this very issue mm. of how important it is to the family of a dying man that he receives the last rites. And it, it just is an important thing. And I, I'm just surprised by how lightly people take yeah. it and have yourself well, priests not an emergency service. And it, it might it, it might in some way corrupt the crime scene. If you go, all kinds of people are present at crime scenes mm. when people are dying, and nobody says you, you can't let a and quite rightly nobody says you can't let a doctor or a, or a paramedic in because they might corrupt the crime scene, because what they're doing is 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 good. I happen to think that if if somebody is is, is dying and and their their faith makes them believe that they should have a priest at the end, then then that then that person is an emergency service and should be. Yeah, allowed in. I, I'm, I'm just astonished at the anger which people have expressed at this suggestion. Yes, but I think, I mean, more than likely, this is, as you say, not because of anything other than perhaps either indifference or the ludicrous health and safety nonsense, you know, where somebody nevertheless is actually lying, dying, um, and the health and safety rules, so you mustn't let anybody else near them in case they might be also wishing to do them harm, even though they may look like a priest, they may not be a priest, but but more important, I think, is, is what you say, that people say all the time now, what does it matter? I mean, I saw Alistair Campbell tweet at the weekend you know what's the big deal about wearing a mask on the underground you know i see people saying things like that all the time well the big deal uh, is that some people don't wish to do it and therefore will not do it and it's as simple as that and it's their choice well, it's, so it's the thing i mean if, if i have to say that, 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 that there have been countries in which the people would be more or less compelled to have the attentions of, of, of priests at the end when they didn't believe and mm. i i would very much support them in resisting that i don't because uh, I, I can imagine being an unbeliever who did not want a priest at the end, uh, just as readily as I can imagine being a Roman Catholic believer who did. Yeah, uh, It's just the, the absence of sympathy for other people holding different views from your own. And the, the way in which the expression of a, and I get this all the time, uh, the expression of a, of a dissenting view from any conventional wisdom is not just treated as the expression of a dissenting view, but is treated as a hostile act uh, which must itself be greeted with hostility mm. and rage and anger. And the, the, the implicit attitude in this that I shouldn't be allowed so much as to say it, uh, which is why I constantly fear for, for what remains of our freedom of speech and thought in this country, which is under relentless attack on the small scale and on the large scale everywhere, in places of work, in the media, uh, everywhere, that, that indeed in the courts and in the police, the whole idea that people should be able to have a divergence of dissenting opinions from conventional wisdom is now under question. And we are moving with extraordinary rapidity towards a society in which only one point of view will be permitted. Yeah. And that was your other uh, sort of uh, main piece in the column this Sunday about how we seem to have become so 
sort of culled, if you like, and 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 sort of you know, made to kneel by society and by authority. That uh, you fear that we are now kind of creating a rod for our own backs, if you like, that they will introduce these various different measures at will whenever they want to. Well, I, think, I think the fascinating thing about the parliamentary report last week on the, on the COVID crisis was that it presumed, uh, without, as far as I can see, any serious attempt to study the global evidence, it simply presumed that, that shutting down society was a good response. And this presumption was immediately accepted, again, in our culture and in the media, as a normal thing to say, without examination. And we have surrendered by accepting this. And I, 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 I do grasp that people have accepted that this is not just out of the majority opinion, but the opinion which almost everybody holds, apart from a very few dissenters such as me. We, by accepting this, we have opened ourselves to another uh, set of shutdowns on some other pretext and given to the state and the police and the government enormous powers which they didn't previously possess over us because we have failed to defend the freedoms we had before. And that's what happens. If you have a freedom and you don't defend it, you lose it. And we have now lost it. And, and that, the fact that that report said what I've long, I think I've said many times on this program, when the reports start to come in, they will say we did not lock down soon enough or hard enough and everybody will accept it. And this mm. is already beginning to happen. And that's the way it goes. Why we are so flaccid and placid and willing to have this stuff done to us when we're supposed to be the great nation of the tradition of freedom and the Bill of Rights and Magna Carta, I'm not sure. It, it, but there it is. That's what we are. So we, if we don't want to be free, I absolutely promise you we won't be. No. And did it just happen, though, um, do you think, when the first lockdown came about? Because I think I know you and I have spoken about this many times. And when we first started this conversation, you and I differed on why it happened. Because we back, did. because back then I was under the impression that it was only going to go on for a few weeks um, and that you would never really know whether it's safeguarded the NHS or not. And I still think that, in a way, that you still can't, you can't really prove it one way or the other. Well, unfortunately. Well, try, try using the NHS at the moment. Well, yeah. Safe yeah. No, listen, listen, I'm, I'm perfectly I willing to, to, to admit that, that you were far righter than I was. Um, while I may say still keep a smidgen of, of possible rightness, because I thought if it was just a little short reason to, to stop. I saw a piece, I don't know if you saw it the weekend in the Sunday Times, about the guy responsible for the lockdown who it turns out is some kind of technical geek, a physics major, um, who studied data and who was wheeled into the room by Dominic Cummings, um, who ran an artificial intelligence company. And he was the one who convinced Boris Johnson, apparently, to lock down. Matthew Side wrote the piece in the Sunday Times. An extraordinary piece. They're calling this guy a genius when, in fact, he had no reason other than the data that he was showing about what might happen to make it happen. Yeah, I, well, I, I, let's I'd probably not go through this again because, I try as anyone might, I think it is this is this is now what the world has accepted, and we have we've, we've now moved into an era of less freedom and more government power than we ever saw before, and one can only resist it from time to time. Could I, by the way, make some a small comment on on the murder of Sir David Amos? That that, that that I think a lot of people are jumping to a lot of conclusions at the moment. We know. It seems to me almost nothing about it, uh, except that it took place. And I would urge huge caution in deciding what the, what the manner of the event is. We don't. We, there's been no trial. Uh, the last time I looked, there hadn't even been a charge. So again, we mustn't presume anything at all. And I, I, I would just urge a great deal of caution on everybody before leaping to conclusions about what it means and what it's all about, because I, I just don't think we have adequate information to do that. 
No, I don't think so. But I guess my question is, were we already sort of softened up for it, if you like, so that when the time came last March 2020, people were more willing than they perhaps would have been otherwise? I think that societies do tend to be conformists. But the great thing about the, the Britain that I grew up in was that it had a substantial number of people, a critical mass of people, who were prepared to say, no, I don't agree with that. Uh, and these were people in every every place. And I wrote a, a, an article, we discussed it last week, about uh, my time as a Labour correspondent. Well, the trade unions, for instance, were full of people who'd become important by standing up for themselves on behalf of others, not doing what they were told, not agreeing uh, with, with everything everybody had told them. There was a spirit of standing up to authority in the trade unions. There was a spirit of standing up to authority in Parliament. MPs genuinely opposed the government. And there were fantastic figures, such as the late Tam D.L., MP who made a profession of not believing what the government told him. And quite rightly, I don't think he has an equivalent now. And, I, and there was a lot more dissent in the press. And the other thing was our education system still turned out people who, who understood the necessity to, to obtain facts before reaching opinions. And that's all gone now. People are, are, are taught opinions uh, rather than taught the knowledge which enables them to form them. As I repeatedly say, people are taught not how to think but what to think. Yeah. And, and many, many years of that had had its effect when it came to the shutdown over COVID. It was amazing how how much more uh, passive and willing to accept being told what to do our society was. Now, none of the safety valves worked. Uh, neither the media, nor the courts, nor the parliament, nor, nor the opposition actually tried to establish whether this was the right thing to do. And so there we are. But you, what do we do about it? Can we reconstruct these things? I, personally, I think not, but uh, some people might think it's worth a try. Uh, but at the very least, can we try and make sure it doesn't get any worse? Well, that's the thing. I mean, I think the trouble is now we've reached a point where it's not so much where you're taught what to think, but you're taught what not to think and which opinions well, not that to also have. Is true, yes. People are frightened out of thinking certain things. Yeah. I mean, they totally are, and they're, and they're very frightened of speaking out. I mean, the whole debates that rage around academia now are so ridiculous. Um as to be kind of almost laughable, aren't they? Well, you would, but this is the thing. I mean, what did George Orwell said about the goose step? The, the countries which, in which the, the, the army did the goose step were countries in which it was dangerous to laugh at things which were patently ridiculous. Yeah. The goose step is ridiculous, but when the, in, in, the, in Soviet Russia or in Nazi Germany or, or Mussolini's Italy, when the troops went by doing their high kicks, uh, people did not laugh. It was dangerous to laugh, even though it was ridiculous. And we yeah. reached... And what's, what's happening in our universities at the moment is, uh, is, is, is beyond belief. Yeah. But this is uh, kind of, this is one of the strange... Every time it's laughed at, it can, it, 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 those who laugh at it get into trouble and it continues and intensifies. Yeah. But this is why, again, every kind of argument that happens and in the wake of what happened on Friday uh, and the murder of an MP, suddenly we're having conversations about whether we should be kinder to one another uh, and whether we should stop being mean on Twitter as if somehow that was the cause of an MP being murdered by a terrorist, which, of course, well, it I wasn't. If, he, if, if, if the alleged killer was a terrorist, uh, again, but I mean, I don't, we don't know that. Uh, but maybe this is the reason. I, maybe there is an awful lot of, of hatred about it, but part of the, the point of Parliament, of course, is that it provides a safety valve for the strong passions which, which, which major contentious issues bring about in a society. People like to see in Parliament uh, the government under pressure, the opposition being tough. 
they don't, they don't mind the shouting or the heckling at Prime Minister's question time because they think, well, at least in this country, we, we know that our opinions are being properly represented. I don't think they are anymore, anything like as well as they used to be, but that's the point of Parliament. So the, 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 the idea which is being propagated by some people you know, that, that MTs should be hidden away and should have ceased to have contact with the public seems to me to be a grave mistake. I mean, obviously, we should take all reasonable precautions to prevent them from being killed in such horrible circumstances, but they, they mustn't be allowed to go into hiding. We would regret that forever if that was allowed to happen. Yes, I think the idea of trying to you know, somehow protect MPs around the clock uh, with some ludicrous amount of money and ludicrous amount of people, which is completely and utterly impracticable anyway, isn't really the way forward. Um, but by the same token, I think it's also ridiculous to try and uh, kind of assimilate the two things as though people being horrible to you on Twitter somehow creates a terribly bad atmosphere uh, where people start running around murdering one another. Well, no, but I think there is, there is a viciousness in our public debate at the moment, which, which is dangerous. I think, this, I don't think that's entirely wrong. As to point out that this happens. See, if you if you are ever the target, as I have been of this of this sliming on Twitter, it's. I, I mean, I'm not. I I've learned to expect it. It doesn't. Uh, it, 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 I can't allow myself to be scared by it. But I won't pretend that it's pleasant. Mm. Uh, and I think sometimes it takes on a form which is uh, is extraordinarily vicious and and has uh, and, and contains. In some cases, the implication of violence. Yeah. I've had people speculating on Twitter about kicking me off my bicycle when riding along the road. I, I just think that they, people, especially when they're anonymous, so many of the worst offenders on social media are, especially when they're anonymous, they, yeah. they, 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 they do go much too far. So I don't, whether this is in any way connected with the tragedy of, of Sir David Amos, I, I would not like to say. But I don't think it's untrue to say that the. the, the, the there is a very low and nasty uh, mood uh, on social media at the moment. One has to keep reminding oneself that this person saying these things is probably uh, somebody sitting in his mother's basement yeah. quite converting sugary drinks into human lard, and that shouldn't necessarily be taken too seriously. But it doesn't feel like that mm. when you're on the receiving end of it, and you're not, you haven't, you aren't some, some leathery old crocodile from Fleet Street. No, but also there are there is the other side of it, which is the the non-anonymous side, where you've got these kind of activists who have become very adept at contacting all the right people uh, should they wish to try and get you uh, to lose your job. You know, they're very good at contacting the people in your organisation who might be, uh, you know, a little bit fragile about it or people in the advertising world or people who, you know, might be supportive of you financially. You know, they're getting very good at sort of cornering you off and singling you out and making sure that they tell all the people that, that need to know what a terrible, horrible person you are in the hopes that you'll be cancelled. Well, this is the other side, I'm afraid, is the world in which we live. And uh, there it is again. It, it, it's all the same thing tending in this awful direction mm. of a closed rather than an open society, uh, in which you're, in which it becomes a personal failing uh, to dissent. And you're not just wrong, but you're bad. And I, I can't, I can't see a good end to it. And, no. Uh, but it, it needs. The only thing I can do is draw attention to it, uh, mm. in the hope that maybe somebody will will, will find a way of. of starting a long march back through the institutions to try and undo this and get us back to a position where we tolerate and treat with civilization our opponents uh, rather than viewing them as enemies to be hated and despised. Yes. And I do try to be civil to people who attack me. Mm. And there is a limit. Uh, I will sometimes, after it's 
clear that, that, that somebody is incapable of civilized discourse, I will sometimes hit back because I think it's just and necessary. But if I possibly can stay civil, I do, and I urge other people to do the same thing. Yes. And do you think that also the politicians now bear some blame for some of this because they have well, become they have become slightly deranged about one another's opponents as well? Well, some of them have, but the, the main blame they bear is that they've they've pretty much decided that a huge number of issues are closed and that the, the things which divide this country... And it's an interesting thing. You look up uh, Sir David Amos. He was a man of very conservative uh, social and moral views, and although he's, he's now rightly being, as people who died are, right, rightly being treated with, with uh, a great deal of courtesy mm. and death, a lot of the people who are treating with courtesy and death would not have agreed with what he said about these things. No. And he, uh, those opinions on, say, abortion or capital punishment were marginal in the parliament in which he sat, although they, uh, they, they might well have been held by a large number of his constituents. I don't think Parliament, either of the major, major parties in Parliament, anyone make a very good job of representing the real spectrum of opinion. They've accepted a very narrow, crudely defined, politically correct view of all kinds of things, which simply isn't believed in by an awful lot of people. Mm. And so, uh, as a result, a lot of political debate has got outside Parliament and outside conventional politics, and one of the places it emerges is in these furious and bilious and uh, and uh, personally vicious attacks on social media. Mm. So if Parliament were more representative of the true divisions in the country, I think it would, it would draw a lot of the poison out of the internet. But it's precisely because it isn't that it doesn't. Yes, I think that's about right. Peter, thanks very much indeed. Peter Hitchens, Men on Sunday Column. There's a little bit of interference on the line, though. I'm not quite sure uh, if that was in the background or whether it was just uh, uh, something uh, that was going on while we were talking to him. Apologies if you had trouble hearing that. However, uh, lots more for us to do. A lot of common sense spoken by Peter Hitchens there, who does say, uh, along with many people, actually he believes that there is a toxic nature to some of the discourse in this country, and that does lead to violence. That does lead to bad places. That does lead to criminality. I'm not so sure, but maybe uh, you agree with him. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Now, lots of you have been in touch with me over the course of the last several months about how difficult it has been for many of you to actually see a doctor. We had a case yesterday uh, of, a of a set of parents saying that their son, who was around about 26, died as a result of not being able to see a doctor because they weren't able to see what was actually wrong with him and it turned out he had some kind of brain aneurysm uh, and he died at the age of 26. Absolutely horrendous, absolutely ghastly and it shouldn't be happening. We now find out uh, that actually there's no doctor in almost half of GP appointments according to data from the NHS themselves and the reason for that is because there are nurses, medicine dispensers, health visitors, acupuncturists, osteopaths, chiropodists, picking up an increasing amount of the load. Let's talk now uh, to Dr Lawrence Buckman, former chair of the BMA GP's committee uh, and a North London GP himself. Dr Lawrence, very good afternoon to you. Good afternoon. We seem to keep having the same conversation, Lawrence, um, and it do. doesn't seem to be getting any better. In fact, for the BMA to now come out and say that anyone who's asking for doctors to uh, go and see patients face to face is actually harassing them and discriminating against them uh, is mad, isn't it? Well, can I just emphasize, I have no position within the BMA and I'm not speaking for them. Um, those days happily ended a long time ago now. <laughs> so I'm now speaking for myself as a GP. Yes. Uh, and I'm not going to attempt to defend poor practice. What I will observe is that the number of patients needing to be spoken to or seen in general practice 
has increased enormously. These are NHS figures, not mm. mine. Um, and that enormous increase has been matched by a fairly significant fall in GP numbers. The number of people seen physically face to face in general practice has actually increased since before the pandemic. Mm. The huge increase in workload has had to go somewhere. And since there aren't enough GPs, it's had to go to a whole variety of other people. Now, we might argue that that wasn't a bad thing, but patients wanting to see, quite rightly, wanting to see a GP face to face are now struggling to get appointments because there are not enough doctors working in general practice to deliver care to the greatly increased number of people who quite reasonably want to see a doctor. Yeah. Um, well, and, it, I mean, does it seem a terribly difficult um, a circle to square, does it? I mean, does it seem incredibly hard to look at what you've just said and, and then take a sort of, um, you know, reasonably educated approach to that and say, right, well, how do we fix it then? Right. The fixing it problem is difficult because for the last 20 years, once upon a time, it was me telling the government. Now it's my successors telling the government. Uh, we were explaining to whichever government it was that the number of GPs was going to fall because the number of retirements was rising and was inevitably going to get worse. And wave after wave of government listeners have decided they weren't going to do much about that. They promised they're going to have 5,000 more GPs, but the fact is the numbers are falling. Mm. My successors in, in general practice don't want to work the kind of hours I worked. People like me were seen as a quaint oddity, you know, dinosaurs that, that saw a lot of people in the surgery. And no longer do we have a workforce that can deliver to those people. So what we need, of course, is to grow the workforce. And the only short term solution is to bring in other people, like mm. you've said, all those uh, paramedical people, right. many of whom can do the job at least as well as us, if not better. But still, there is a need for people to see GPs face to face. And there are not enough bodies. But there are equally, uh, and we know this because the GPs have told us that this is one of the reasons they're not available to see patients, is there have been plenty of GPs available to hand out vaccines to people uh, because they get a bit of an extra bunce for that, and that could be quite lucrative. Uh, that would be true, except the large number of us who went to give vaccines voluntarily. I wasn't paid a hate me for vaccinating people. And I think many of my colleagues who were either retired or part-retired just did it for nothing. Mm. But you're quite right. Those GPs who did the COVID vaccinations in the first two waves did receive money for doing it. But when you took out the cost of setting up outdoor uh, venues, uh, most of us worked outdoors. You can't imagine how cold it is in February um, <laughs> when you're vaccinating people for eight hours on a run. Um, it, those people, um, the, the costs were nearly nearly all taken up by the in, in the profit. So there wasn't much money made in it, actually. Um, I'd like to think there was money made, but it's not true. Right. Um, well, I mean, my, my, my general view of the world is that people will do things for money faster than they'll do things for nothing. Um, and so while I'm yeah. sure that part of what you say is right, equally part of what I say is right. And if you're going to take away from your regular day to day job uh, in order to do anything, then obviously there's going to be a problem when you go back to your day-to-day -day job when you find that all the people that wanted to see you are still waiting there. That's right. And um, it was obvious that this was going to happen. Like I say, this was an accident waiting to happen. And now the, the drive to do things in a way that is more efficient, if we call it that, uh, seeing people remotely, um, most GPs will tell you that for quite a lot of patients, remote is not really satisfactory. 
and you're you're finding cases all the time of people who would have been better if they would have been seen face to face and mm. probably more quickly yes the difficulty is that there just isn't the workforce there and the problem i think the bma were surfacing and i can't speak for them i'm only trying to interpret uh, what i've read the same as you um is that there was a suggestion that gps would be forced and in, in a difficult situation where morale is awful and people are working quite hard and there are an awful lot of people just on the brink of retirement or who could be pushed quite easily, forcing people as opposed to encouraging them uh, is something that I think is a mistake. So whilst I would strongly encourage my colleagues to see as many patients face to face as they humanly can, there's a point where they physically can't and to then force them to do more. I don't think is a terribly good idea. No, I think forcing anyone to do anything is a very bad idea. In the same way that up in Scotland, which we we're about to talk about, uh, you're basically forcing people to take a vaccine in order to go to a nightclub, despite the fact that everybody else in the nightclub isn't vaccinated. So supposedly uh, they're not in any danger. But that's another story. Um, the problem for me here, uh, Lawrence, is that, you know, this has not come as any great surprise to anyone. You know, we haven't suddenly woken up and gone, oh, dear, there's not enough doctors. You know, we've got a massively increased population. Our own population has gone up probably by about five to seven million in the last 10 years. We've got more pressure on GP surgeries. We've got stories coming out last week saying that some GPs have as many as 3,000 patients on their books. Now, obviously, you can't possibly see all of them. But again, somebody needs to get a grip of it and say, well, let's restructure the way it all works. Surely. I mean, I'm getting sick to death of saying this. Yes, and you. And if I came in, if I came in to work every day, and we didn't have any enough people in the control room to make the show go out, I'd make sure that we eventually did. I wouldn't keep coming in every day and complaining we didn't have enough people in the control room. No, it's there are several things you can do. One is one is quite quick, and I'm glad the government has finally got round to letting GPs uh, relax the uh, rules on surgery cleaning after patients have come in. The COVID restrictions have made it really difficult for people to be seen. Once they take that away, and I think they will, that will that will greatly increase the number of face-to-face -face appointments potentially. Mm. The next, I'm afraid, is a 10-year thing, which is growing more doctors. Uh, that takes time. You can't just do that. Um, and the third, I'm afraid, is that they're going to have to have some system for sieving out patients who really do need to be seen faster mm. uh, now that that word triage which is a warm word really it comes from the army um the idea that you should somehow triage patients better is something that was tried during the pandemic the nhs 111 service ran a covid service i know because i used to work for it uh. and all those people who had covid or might have had were sorted before they ever got anywhere near a hospital, 999, a GP. And there was a whole team of doctors, a huge number actually, 1,500 at the maximum, delivering care to patients more quickly. And surely the time has come when that overflow of patients who need something urgently or semi-urgently, the people with lumps, for example, stuff like that, where they clearly can't be left they need to reinstate a service like that that would deal with the overflow. We can't have people waiting three or four weeks for a routine appointment for something that isn't simple. And, and that's something we could do fairly quickly and now. Yeah. Uh, and why the government abandoned the specialist 111 service as opposed to the routine one um, is a mystery because it was up and running and there was great camaraderie and it did deliver for patients much more quickly than my poor colleagues in, in general practice 
are able to do because of the workload pressure. Well, interestingly, well, one of the one of the pieces that I read over the course of the weekend, I mentioned to Peter Hitchens already, uh, was about a guy who's been given credit with sort of making Boris Johnson become convinced that the lockdown was necessary. And he was a sort of in, uh, uh, artificial intelligence tech geek, effectively, who was brought in by Dominic Cummings, who was very good at modelling. He was very good at sort of, you know, looking at data. He was very good at analysing data. He basically said, look, what we want to do here is take away uh, from the NHS all of the kind of rigmarole of, of, of manually entering data, which an awful lot of people apparently in the NHS do. And, you know, the one thing that I thought about his description of the NHS was that it is still very much an old-fashioned, you know, very untechnologically forward-thinking organisation. And so it seems to me there's an awful lot of paperwork that goes on, and many people will tell me this. I mean, I'm fortunate because I don't, as I say, have much to do with doctors, but, you know, the amount of paperwork that gets done, the number of pieces of paper that get handed to people, that get sent out to people, you know, they need to modernise it, for God's sake, is what I'm saying. Uh, I'm afraid the NHS IT is astonishingly slow and the bureaucracy is uh, ever more detailed because of course the NHS is convinced that most of the people who work for it are busy committing fraud actually they're so busy they haven't got the time <laughs> to, they haven't got the time to commit fraud right. chance of a fine thing no i'm sure that's true but i mean again uh, we keep having these conversations you know why can we not compartmentalize the NHS properly so that it's run properly Rather than, you know, people like yourself, Lawrence, who I know are obviously very good at your job, you know, you know what you need to do, but there's no way to make it happen. It's kind of like, you know, it must be frustrating because you've got government ministers who probably should be well out of it and left to run the, the government and not get involved in health policy. And then you've got NHS managers who seem to be almost incapable of doing anything quickly. And, you know, it's just, it's just this sort of behemoth that needs fixing. Well, whenever you hear the phrase... Lessons will be learned. You know for sure lessons will not be learned. That's true. Uh, and we struggle against a, a very inert tanker that is astonishingly difficult to turn round. Mm. Why can't we turn it round? Well, because there is a political agenda plonked on top of uh, uh, the NHS's sets of agendas. And of course, the must-dos come from the top, from politicians, not from the NHS. I would love to see a depoliticised health service, one that just got on with the job properly and wasn't micromanaged by um, ministerial and government diktat. It shouldn't make any difference who's in power. Uh, health for all should be a, a, a thing that we should all believe in and all deliver. And the NHS really does struggle with the next great idea from Westminster. It'd be wonderful if they stopped having ideas. <laughs> well indeed or at least if they had a proper idea and a proper i mean they talk a lot about this money that's going to come into the business as of april of next year once they start taxing us all a bit more but you know as well as i do it's going to be just like dropping you know a load of air into a load of air you know you yes. won't see any difference nothing's going to change no nothing sadly no exactly right so what should people do um, how do you get to see a doctor if uh, you are having trouble? Because obviously our, our thoughts today are with um, David Nash, who's a 26-year-old mature law student, right, whose parents are saying that he died because the shambolic NHS 111 service didn't allow him to see a doctor. And it turned out he died of meningitis and he had something called a mastoiditis uh, in his ear, which caused a brain abscess, which could have been yeah. seen by anyone who looked at him, but because nobody looked at him, they didn't see it. 
I don't want to talk about the individual case, only to say that mastoiditis is remarkably difficult to diagnose with absolute certainty. But what it would mean is you'd have to go to hospital to diagnose it, but that somebody touching it would have spotted something was odd. Um, it is difficult to diagnose. But let's move on from the individual case and talk in general. Um, we all have to be much more careful about what we do and what should the parents or patients do when you want to get into contact with your GP firstly explain what the problem is if you can get through the telephone barrier mm. if you can go online uh, and your practice has an online connection and you can do that if you're able to recognizing that 20% of the population are not able to do that because they don't have the kit or they don't have the wherewithal um, if you can go online most practices are very prompt about getting you back if you get in the phone queue the usual one where you're 30th in the queue and when you get to the top, they say there's no more appointments. Right. If that happens to you, then what I suggest you do is you either go to the surgery, not to demand an immediate appointment, but to go to the surgery to say, I need an appointment. But I've had people tell me stories, Lawrence, that they've done that and they've been told to go home and phone. Well, that's, <laughs> that's absolutely bonkers. Well, I yeah, but that's that. what's happening. I have had that happen to me. Um, so I sat in the waiting room and telephoned my GP um, from the waiting room in the surgery. And strangely, the receptionist came and said, don't be so stupid. Right. We'll sort you out. Okay. Um, and the fact is... You try gluing yourself to the door, I suppose. You could do all that kind of thing. But the main thing is so that a GP, as opposed to a computer or a receptionist or anybody else intercepts the problem mm. before a doctor has had a chance to listen yes most doctors once they've had the chance to hear you will then do something promptly whatever it is yeah. and many of the times they can deal with it on the phone or online but they can't always and when they can't the time is to get make sure you can be heard by a doctor preferably your doctor but failing that a doctor and failing that 111 because 111 also have access to your doctor's appointments. Yes. They can make you an appointment if necessary. I know because when I was working for them, that's exactly what I did. Um, and there are various ways of getting through. Ultimately, though, there, are, there is not enough medical time to see everybody. Mm. Getting rid of the COVID cleaning will make it much easier. That's, that is definitely... Uh, an, an instant win um, and I'm glad they finally got round to doing it yes. um, they could have done it earlier and it would have helped more I think so and and for a quickie I would reinstate the 111 specialist service mm. um, which also uh, although it must have cost a mint actually delivered a ferocious service to patients which I think they deserve yes well apparently it doesn't matter how much it costs anymore so we should be doing all of that Dr Lawrence Buckman very, very nice to talk to you. Thank you, as ever, for some common sense. Former chair of the BMA GP's committee. He's a North London GP now as well. You know, the story just goes on and on and on. It's like dragging a corpse around with you. It's like not ever finding somewhere uh, that you can get the thing fixed. I mean, there must be a way, surely, to God. This is Talk Radio. Talk Radio. Across the UK. Online. On DAB. And on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.
If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.